Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This episode is brought to you by For the Ages, the New York Historical Society's must-listen-to podcast exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversations on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped America. American Inheritance, Slavery in the Revolutionary Era is a two-part conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Edward J. Larson about how the twin strands of liberty and slavery were joined in the nation's founding and the limits of the founders' conception of freedom. In the first episode, Larson delves into the origins of slavery in America and the role of free and enslaved Black people during the Revolutionary War. The second episode explores how legal frameworks around slavery evolved in the New Republic and delves into the role slavery played in the establishment of the first United States government. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. The Bowery Boys episode 407, New York by Gaslight, illuminating the 19th century. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers with the story of gaslighting, the breakthrough technology that illuminated both the streets and the homes of 19th century New York. Uh, what are you talking about? This week's show is on the history of Murray Hill, the neighborhood in Manhattan. We, we talked about this multiple times. We had meetings about this. Are you crazy? What? what? I'm. Excuse me. What? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is an example of gaslighting in modern parlance. <laughs> a little, a little actor's studio there for you. Uh, that was that was kind of cruel. <laughs> yes. I think we need less gaslighting. Less gaslighting, a- actually, yes. these days. And that meaning of gaslighting perhaps is very relevant, sadly, today, as it means, quote, the act or practice of grossly misleading someone, especially for one's own advantage. That was, in fact, the Merriam-Webster word of the year for 2022. And it, of course, comes from an old Ingrid Bergman film of the name <laughs> Gaslight. But to- Little known fact. <laughs> but today, no joke, we are talking about the more romantic, albeit sometimes foul-smelling, form of gaslighting. Or gas lighting. 
<laughs> gas lighting. Let's take a space between those gas words. Gas lighting. There we go. The method of distributing coal-generated gas via pipes to illuminate the modern city. And it is true, thanks to advancements in gaslight, cities like New York and London and Paris could finally come alive at night. Before the introduction of gaslight in the 1820s, New York was a much darker and quieter place after sunset. But after the installation of gas-powered lighting, New York really became the city that never sleeps. It meant that you could work late without your eyes straining or, or wander the streets, you know, at night with, with less apprehension. It meant greater ease reading a book or, or throwing a lavish ball. Gaslight brought the 19th century city to life in ways that are really easy to overlook today. And this year marks the 200th anniversary of the first charter ever granted to a gas company in New York. I like that we say that. Like, it's like, wow! That is, we do celebrate everything, Greg. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like much, but consider this. That original company has evolved and merged and still lives on today as a major utility company. You probably received their correspondence in the mail, in fact. We'll get to them in a moment. What suspense. But yes, the gas is still flowing to homes and businesses all over the city. Maybe not so much for lighting today, but for many other uses. And at the end of our show today, we'll be joined by Jane Brocks, author of Brilliant, The Evolution of Artificial Light, to discuss the many ways that gas lighting transformed life in the city. Tom, believe it or not, one of the earliest descriptions of gaslight comes from the former mayor of New York City, Philip Hone. Now, in 1838, his city would already shine with this innovative new illumination. But in the winter of that year, Hone actually found himself in Philadelphia, admiring one of that city's most beautiful buildings, the Greek revival Second Bank of the United States. Its classical, ageless form made all the more stunning by this new artificial glow. From his celebrated diary, quote, The portico of this glorious edifice, the sight of which always repays me for coming to Philadelphia, appeared more beautiful to me this evening than usual from the effect of the gaslight. Each of the fluted columns had a jet of light from the inner side so placed as not to be seen from the street, but casting a strong light upon the front of the building, the softness of which, with its flickering from the wind, produced an effect strikingly beautiful. But Greg, let's pull back for a second here. I think that we should start with something pretty basic, okay? What is this gas? Okay, in gaslight, what is the gas? We'll be talking about manufactured gas in this story, not natural gas, which people get in their homes today for heat and for cooking stoves. The world of 19th century gaslight came about mostly because of coal-produced gas mm. or burning coal in a closed container, then distributing that gas via pipes to lamps, which needed to be lit and extinguished manually. Okay, so the emphasis here 
was the pipes,、mm-hmm. right? Just like electric lamps today, gas lamps were attached to a system of pipes. In their case, gas pipes that were located inside the walls and under the streets. It was a major infrastructure challenge, and it required work installing it. But it was worth it because the city's lighting options had been pretty primitive before this. And we should distinguish right now between exterior and interior lighting, which、right. was sometimes very different. Now, if we go back again to Dutch New Amsterdam, returning to those days, believe it or not, they did have rules regarding street lighting. An ordinance that quote, for want of light, in the dark times of the moon, the burgher living in every seventh house was to put up a lighted candle in a lantern and hang it on a pole in front of his dwelling. The families who lived in the six intervening houses were to provide candles for this public lighting. So the city ordinance was the excuse for candle dipping parties. Gaiety accompanied the making of this city necessity. Unquote. The party just never stopped in old New Amsterdam, <laughs>、um, or in colonial New York, because it continued like this for many decades. It was a shared candle production and lighting of the streets. Right, shared responsibility, until the gradual introduction of oil lamps, of which there were many kinds in use back then. The most predominant form here in New York were whale oil lamps, gleaned from the blubber of whales. This was a very versatile type of lighting, requiring an individual fill a lantern with oil, then lighting the wick, which meant that you know it was mobile、mm-hmm. and you could use it indoors or outdoors.、Mm-hmm. Although, if you're burning whale blubber,、um, I would imagine that that would produce a rather particular smell. Right.、Mm, not to mention the impact on the Earth's whale population, which would be nearly hunted to extinction over the next two centuries of whale oil usage. And colonial New York used shiploads of whale oil. In 1762, the city set up the first municipally funded street lamps, wooden lamp posts burning whale oil,、mm. and so using. Spermaceti, which is the oil taken from sperm whales, the city streets would then be lit up this way, actually going all the way into the new century. In fact, in the year 1800, whale oil street lamps would be lit on Broadway above Canal Street for the very first time. This seems rather inadequate. I mean, first you had to employ all of these lamp lighters to light and extinguish all these lamps. And really, they couldn't have been that bright at all. Well, we live in a city today that, arguably, in some zones, has too much light.、Mm-hmm. You know, you need sunglasses in Times Square today. We we forgot how dark the city used to be. Darkness, which made it not only unsafe, of course, but very challenging in emergencies. Imagine shopping for food at these outdoor marketplaces under the dimmest of oil lamps. Limited light meant limited hours for regular businesses, and forget about producing newspapers at night.、Mm. New York actually got its first daily newspaper, called the American Minerva, in the year 1793, and you could imagine the challenge it was to put that together every single late night under lantern light. But fortunately, by the beginning of the 19th century, there was another technology just on the horizon. It was, in fact, just across 
the Atlantic. And in the nick of time, because with the city growing more populous, it would soon grow denser and more packed in. And then as a result, it would also grow darker. And this was obviously a problem that major European cities were already facing. By the year 1800, London had one million residents, and Paris had about 600,000 residents. Coming up with a better lighting solution was thus extremely urgent for these cities. Mm-hmm. In the 1790s, the English chemist William Murdoch first began experimenting with producing coal gas and then using it for lighting, first illuminating his own home, and then in 1802, lighting up his place of employment, which just happened to be the engineering firm Bolton & Watt, better known for their revolutionary achievements in manufacturing steam engines. And so lighting was very important for factories because you could now keep those factories open later. You could even keep them open around the clock. And meanwhile, a similar lighting revolution was also taking place in Paris, thanks to the inventor Philippe Le Bon. And by the year 1820, that city would get its first outdoor gas lighting. Wow. So the City of Lights would get its gas lights. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, both of these cities would be defined really by this innovation. Mm -hmm. I mean, think of the images, Greg, of Victorian London, you know, with the fog and the gaslight. So it seemed natural then that it would cross the Atlantic. So when was it introduced Mm -hmm. in the United States? Well, the first early adopter was an inventor named David Melville, who experimented with gas in his town of Newport, Rhode Island. He also first lit his home and even received the first American patent for gaslighting in the year 1810. He would go on to work on minor projects in the region, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, but he could never really get the funding or the widespread support because of resistance from, well, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. You can probably guess. Well, whaling up there was a pretty big industry during this period. Mm -hmm. So I assume that those companies were really putting the brakes on things. So then where did it really take off? Here in New York? Uh, No. The actual answer to that is Baltimore. And the location was the very first building ever constructed to house a museum built by the artist Rembrandt Peale, the son of portrait painter Charles Wilson Peale. Now, making his own coal gas in the shed out back of this museum, Rembrandt lit the building with gas lighting in the summer of 1816 with the primary function of keeping the museum open later hours. Wow. And I'm sorry, but didn't you just go to Baltimore? You're very Baltimore-centric all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, I just like steered the story into this. I was, I was down there for another project that I'm working on. But I did happen to visit that building. Mm-hmm. The The Peel Museum is still there. It's today it's a contemporary art museum. But if you're in Baltimore, check it out because they have a display of objects related to Peel's early experimentation here. Peel would even end up forming Baltimore's first gas company. And by the following year, Baltimore would be the first in the United States with outdoor gas lighting. But New York would not be far behind. We'll get to the arrival of gas lights in the streets of New York right after this. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. 
From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So by the 18-teens, the city streets here in New York were still lit by oil lamps, uh, even though, you know, other major European cities had been implementing gas streetlights. But here in New York in 1809, there were more than 1,600 street lamps burning oil every night. And, And they were tended to nightly by this legion of lamplighters. It's important to also remember that these lamps really didn't throw a very bright light down onto Mm -hmm. the streets and sidewalks so that, you know, come nighttime, New York streets, even with these lamps, were dark. They really just had these puddles of flickering light. And meanwhile, inside private homes, you had oil lamps and candles, which were providing a nightly glow. Which, you know, really does sound very romantic. And it undoubtedly had its charms. But lighting your home with oil lamps and with candles 
really meant dimly lit rooms, let's face it, okay? And there were also obvious dangers. It was hazardous. Remember that New York's wooden houses were all lined up next to each other on you know many of these tight streets. Fires could very easily and did very easily spread. So I set up, you know, the Baltimore got gas and that you know Rhode Island had some why didn't New York just immediately get into the gaslight business it seems like an obvious improvement well you know it didn't happen right away because it would be a massive undertaking you'd have to build a system of underground pipes to deliver the gas you'd have to build a a quote gas works you know the production facility for the gas itself Now, the city experimented with lighting gas lamps in City Hall Park in 1812. And then a few years later, according to the 1909 book, Cradle Days of Old New York, the city experimented in 1817 with laying tin pipes and using gas to light up a couple of storefronts that were along Broadway south of City Hall. And New Yorkers, of course, flocked to the scene and they enjoyed, you know, and admired this new light. But the city estimated that it would cost several hundred thousand dollars at the time to do this on, on a larger scale. And that was just too expensive. Oh, but, if, you know, to have taken in those first gaslit storefronts, imagine seeing that for the very first time. Mm-hmm. But this was the days of weak municipal government. So then I assume they passed this off basically to a private enterprise who rolled out the system. Exactly. Yes. The New York Gas Company was formed in 1823, and it was granted a 30-year exclusive right to lay cast iron gas pipes under the city streets downtown uh, in the area, basically everything south of Grand Street. And the city planned then to tap into this gas for its new street lamps. And two years later, in 1825... 1825, the same year that the Erie Canal opened, the New York Gas Company started, you know, digging up both sides of Broadway from Canal Street all the way down to the tip of the island. Which sounds like a complete mess. Also, rather exciting, possibly terrifying for some people. I mean, what was this invisible gas? Was it even safe? You can really imagine why this whole concept of a flammable, invisible gas, right, made people really nervous. And so the president of the New York Gas Company, a man named Samuel Leggett, he understood the public's hesitance. And so he equipped his home with gas on Cherry Street. Um, at Franklin Square. It's a spot that has been wiped out and replaced by one of the ramps of the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm. That would make Mr. Leggett's home the very first in the city to be equipped with gaslight. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal. But the rollout of the gaslight across the city, you know, would be a little slower. It would take years. It didn't happen all at once. By 1827, there were 120 street lamps along Broadway from Battery all the way up to Grand Street that operated on gaslight. So that meant that when you were walking around town then, some blocks would be lit by the fancy new gas lamps, you know, with their stronger light, while other intersecting streets would either be dark or be lit by old oil lamps. And also, just because these gas mains passed by your house, it didn't mean that you necessarily became a customer, right? Some residents didn't want to pay to equip their homes, or or they didn't trust it. Some would just stick with their old oil lamps and candles. 
Now, you mentioned that the first franchise, the New York Gas Company, that they received from the city the permission to dig gas lines south of Grand Street. But then flashing forward to the 1830s, you have blocks being developed, you know, well north of here. By the mm-hmm. 1840s, actually, they were all the way up to 42nd Street. Yes. And so another company then entered the game in 1830 with a strikingly similar name. This one, the <laughs> Manhattan Gas Company, uh, which was allowed to then lay gas pipes north of Grand. Now, we have talked a lot about New York of the 1830s and the 1840s in countless shows. You know, these are the years of New York society, you know, moving from Washington Square up Lower Fifth Avenue. New York's population was swelling and they were literally moving up the island. Yes. And now step back and consider that, you know, suddenly the city, that city, really had two kinds of neighborhoods, the gaslit districts and those that were still reliant upon oil lamps. And, you know, you'll get to this more in a moment, but all of a sudden these different neighborhoods had drastically different characters at night. The the gaslight created a different atmosphere. Jane Brocks, who we'll speak with in a moment, writes about this new light shining in cities. Quote, A city night thrives in myriad lights, shop windows, signs, theater entrances, taverns, homes. And in the gaslit neighborhoods, the brightness of all of the illuminated places increased exponentially, which in turn fed the vitality of the streets. People who lived in gaslit neighborhoods grew accustomed to the brightness and often felt safer in their larger illumination. Those districts still dependent on feeble, messy oil lamps, most often working class and poor neighborhoods, were another country now, a place into which the well-to-do might be more reluctant to venture, as if the gloominess of oil lamps marked the edges of their territory. There was also a belief that this new, stronger street lamp could help rid the city of nighttime crime and, and nuisance. Because after all, where was crime most likely to occur? In the shadows of an old oil lamp or a street that was lit by a much brighter gas lamp? Rachel Jung writes in the Journal of Urban History in her essay, Sunlight and Gaslight, Mapping Light in Mid-19th Century New York City. Quote, As gas lamps spread in cities, the areas where people did not feel safe were lit first. And the areas where middle and upper class people were likely never to go were lit last. By 1850, 285 gas main segments had been installed in the streets, illuminating over 5,000 lamps. Gas mains were notably absent from areas like the Five Points and the Lower East Side, sectors of the city synonymous with poverty, immorality, and crime. Rather, the region with an unparalleled concentration of gas mains was Lower Manhattan, a notable commercial and business district, thus indicating a powerful relationship between light and commerce. And where was all this gas even being produced, by the way? Well, not in those fancy neighborhoods. No, I don't think so. Um, It was being made over in the Gas House District. Now, early on, it was produced at a facility at Hester and Rinder Street. But these facilities would move up to that stretch of the east side that is just north of today's East Village, basically from about 14th to 27th Streets. 
1842, the gas companies erected enormous gas tanks here in their gas production factory, their gas house near the East River. And these tanks, Greg, were filled with pressurized gas. Now, this was a mostly Irish working class neighborhood at the time. And unfortunately, you knew that it was the gas house district because it smelled like gas. It had this tendency to leak out of the tanks, polluting the air and poisoning the soil. This district would be replaced in the 20th century after World War II by Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village. We have a show on Stuytown from 2019, which you should check out. That's episode 303. And Con Ed still has facilities over there. So in some ways, the gas house district lives on. But what was it like to live in the glow of gaslight? As gaslight continued to expand in New York and in the city of Brooklyn in the mid-19th century and then into the Gilded Age, I think we should just stop here and discuss how it was being used and what extraordinary changes that gaslight made to modern urban life. Because by the year 1852, gaslighting was the most common lighting source in New York. Well, it obviously meant more efficient lighting, right? Better lighting, mm-hmm. which for one thing meant that the workday didn't stop, didn't end when the sun set. And, you know, of course, the downside of that meant that, yes, factories could stay open later. And then, of course, people would work later hours. Mm-hmm. However, good gaslighting meant that you could read and write after dark and not strain your eyes. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, how did Alexander Hamilton do, do it back then, right? <laughs> a lot of whale oil. A lot of whale oil for Mr. Hamilton, right. Gaslight revolutionized whole industries. Just to take one, for example, let's take theater, mm. where they had previously used oil lamps to a rather dull, mild effect in the 18th century. But here comes gaslight. The Chestnut Theater in Philadelphia became the first in America to introduce gaslighting on stage in 1816, and naturally, New York stages would follow suit. And one strength over traditional oil lamps was that gaslights could be controlled, Mm -hmm. right? And in this case, it could be modified, I guess, for stage effects. Yes, stage designers created special effects with gaslighting, even colored hues on the stage. All of this would have been experienced as super high-tech for the day, right? Like some, this is some like Titanic sinking on the sh- on the stage <laughs> type of high tech, right? That that is a dated Broadway <laughs> reference, Greg Young. Anyway, high tech theater magic, and Gaslight would influence all aspects of a production: the staging, the acting, the costumes, the dressing rooms, how actors painted themselves. In 1867, a groundbreaking melodrama hit the New York theater called Under the Gaslight. That show featuring spectacular gaslighting effects and even a steam locomotive on stage. Very high tech. (laughs) Right? It's kind of like a Titanic, (laughs) right? So with Gaslight, theater producers could finally think big. They could think blockbuster. And that's just the theater. Mm -hmm. I mean, think of the benefits for other institutions and companies. Libraries could stay open. You could read. Police stations could function better when they could see what was going on. Mm -hmm. Hospitals, same thing. You know, you could operate at night. Every 
element of life was transformed in New York. And of course, home life was transformed. All of the Gilded Age mansions of Fifth Avenue were furnished with gaslighting. What was especially fascinating is that having gaslighting meant that you were connected with your neighbor. These were the years, of course, before electricity, before telephones, before cable. Gas lines, in fact, were being installed concurrently with the sewer system and plumbing and running water. In a way, I mean, it's kind of like the Internet, right, of the mid-19th century because it affected every aspect of your life. And it also affected your neighbors. <laughs> well, if I could just make a more ridiculous modern comparison, when reading about the various psychological effects that Gaslight had on people, it was almost like social media. People saw themselves differently in Gaslight, and they saw others differently. Which maybe wasn't always a great thing. A gaslight sometimes had a, a green or an amber hue, a filter, if you will, a mo- <laughs> an in-person filter. A green filter. <laughs> that sometimes made people seem very unlike themselves. Imagine if you were a young woman getting ready for a lavish ball. And there were many, many more Gilded Age balls thanks to gaslight. So if you're her, imagine how you might have dressed yourself I even read, actually, that costumes and gowns actually got a lot more garish and brightly colored because the gaslight would sometimes subdue and even change those colors based on a person's eyesight. Wow. So all of that sounds really kind of fabulous, Mm -hmm. right? But let us remember that we are running pressurized gas pipes into people's homes who were unaccustomed to using it. I mean, were there some dangers here? Well, there were some very negative side effects, of course. In the early years, especially, people sometimes passed out because the there was no ventilation or no proper ventilation, and flames were burning up the oxygen in the room. Mm. You would also get major headaches due to the fumes. I mean, gas could also even be more destructive, right? I mean, it could explode. Oh, yes. And explosions threatened, you know, more than just the household. I mean, like it was scary enough, but a gas explosion would threaten the whole city because it was all connected. Oh, in fact, let me share with you the details of one of the most devastating explosions during New York's Gilded Age, a gas explosion which occurred on December 23rd, 1871. Quoting from The New York Times. At 5.50 last evening, the purifying house at the Metropolitan Gas Company's works exploded, causing a panic in the neighborhood and great inconvenience to the people in that part of the city. Those who saw and heard the explosion say that the noise was like that supposed to be made by an earthquake. The fire was extinguished about two hours after the explosion. A frightful calamity was averted by the presence of mind of one of the employees of the company, who, by shutting the gates leading to the mains, thus cut off the gas from the houses. But for this precaution, there might have been gas explosions all over the district. It's terrifying to even consider what could have happened. Uh, The effects were felt throughout the city. And there was some good news. There were some people prepared for this. For instance, P.T. Barnum was putting on his so-called Great Traveling Museum Menagerie and Mammoth Circus, of course he was, at a skating rink on 63rd Street. But he, very fortunately, 
had a huge stock of alternate lighting supplies, mm-hmm. including candles and a few dozen kerosene lanterns. Ah, uh, kerosene lanterns, right. <laughs> it's, it's worth remembering that gas lighting wasn't the only lighting game in town. No, it wasn't. And thank goodness for that. As you mentioned... Less wealthy districts of New York did not see the benefits of gaslighting. They certainly saw their streets dug up to lay gas pipes, but there were no gas street lamps in these streets or in their houses. And as we've spoken about more recently in our show on Jacob Reese, for instance, these quarters were incredibly overcrowded tenement districts, places that often did not get adequate sunlight even during the day, okay, much less any kind of illumination at night. Fortunately, though, for everyone else, there was the kerosene lantern. And these were like oil lamps, right? Kerosene lamps were individual lanterns. An evolution of the whale oil lamp, basically. Kerosene was also a coal byproduct. At first it was. It was first produced in 1846 by a Polish inventor. Kerosene lamps then came on the market just a few years later when it became cheaper to produce kerosene, becoming an affordable alternative to gas lighting. By the time of the Gilded Age then, kerosene had effectively replaced all that whale oil. It then became the preferred type of lighting for different kinds of New York establishments. Those that were off the main avenues, if you will, taverns and oyster houses and boarding houses. Mm. It was so much cheaper. Mm. So really, to use a Jacob Reese cliche, the lighting of the other half. Mm-hmm. And, and this was safer to use in gas? I mean, look, I have seen every episode of the Little House on the Prairie, right? <laughs> and it just seems like every other episode, some horse kicked over a kerosene lamp and burning up the barns or the churches or, you know, what have you, wherever they're in. And yeah, so, but essentially... Yes, but it was, that was a 1970s TV <laughs> show, Greg. So yes, there were some dangers, but essentially it was its virtue of not being connected to this massive source of gas. Many considered it safer. And unlike gas lighting, which is, you know, more of a novelty today... Kerosene lamps are still in, you know, fairly wide use. Rural areas internationally and, of course, you know, here in America when you go camping. Sure. But back to our story here. I mean, kerosene, the big point here is that it was much, much cheaper than gaslighting. Mm-hmm. And, and the light was also very bright. But let's go back for a second to the, the dirty, dirty coal, <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Was coal being used still to produce this gas as well? The the gas that was going into people's homes? Mostly, but there you know, there were several ways to produce gas and it it did vary from place to place. Made, of course, by a few select gas companies, or should I say, made by the employees of the gas company who suffered the most arduous working conditions in the production of all this gas, no matter how it was made. Not to mention the absolute destruction of the city's atmosphere. One physician hired by the city in the 1870s declared, It is a familiar fact that but a small percentage of illuminating gas in the atmosphere is sufficient to destroy vegetable life to such an extent that the ground all about a gasometer is as barren of trees and verdure as a desert of sand. Unquote. Not to mention the chaos 
in the streets mm. on a daily basis. There were six gas companies operating in New York by the year 1880. And you could imagine the constant tearing up of the streets, like everywhere. And, you know, this being the era of gangs like the Wyos, the Barry Boys, other gangs, rival gas companies would spawn so-called gas house gangs, which would tear out competitors' pipes, and then they would fight each other above these pits in a malodorous haze of gas. I mean, this really is an aspect of the Gilded Age that doesn't get much attention. (laughs) It doesn't, no. We hear a lot about Mrs. Astor prepping for a ball, but very little about gas house gangs, you know, battling over her (laughs) gas pipes. But but if that doesn't surprise you, then it really won't shock you in any way to hear that there was all sorts of collusion and price gouging going on with these respective companies who reached an agreement to set prices in 1880 that was incredibly and very obvious by today's standards crooked. It, right. Collusion. Yeah. Really. <laughs> price setting. And it really made gaslighting even more expensive than it might have been otherwise. And thus, we come to the end of the Gaslight era. We'll introduce Edison and have a conversation with author Jane Brocks after this. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. You know, some of us enjoy a good candlelit dinner, or we have scented candles in our bedrooms or bathrooms. Kerosene lanterns are still in use. But nobody lights their house with gas anymore. So what happened? Well, I think that most listeners know what happened, right? Or or a light bulb just went off in their heads. (laughs) A very bright, blinking light bulb. (laughs) Yes. Electric illumination happened. It was building on research and experimentation in electricity that went back, I mean, it went all the way back to ancient times, but which had really picked up speed in the late 18th century and really throughout the entire 19th century. And again, multiple versions of electric lights were happening around the same time in New York. We've spoken about some of these in other shows. For example, first came the arc lights. I love when the arc lights (laughs) reappear in a show. They're otherworldly, right? They're, They're mostly these outdoor lamps that burned incredibly bright, so bright that they needed to be positioned extremely high over the street to avoid catching people's 
eyes. Like people would be blinded by these lights. And because, you know, they threw out an enormous amount of white light, just drowning out the gaslight. Right. You put them very high as well to cover as much of the city as possible. Mm -hmm. They had been first introduced in Paris and London in 1878. And then in the United States by inventor Charles Brush, who installed municipal arc lights in Wabash, Indiana in March of 1880. Wabash? <laughs> so when did it come to New York? Later that year, at the end of 1880, um, I think they wanted an out-of-town tryout <laughs> just to see how it would. You know, these were really bright. Yeah. But they became a little bit more tolerable later on once porcelain covers were introduced that could help moderate that light a bit. And, and they would kind of catch on for outdoor use. Those arc lights, those really bright arc lights, were really not good for, say, a bedroom. But there was another invention that had been in the works for some time here. And it was, of course, much softer and flattering. And that was the incandescent light bulb. And we recorded an entire show on Edison lighting up New York back in 2011. Whoa. Um, <laughs> that episode, <laughs> a still good one, episode 132, Electric New York. But in brief, Edison really threw himself into his electric light project in 1878. He was kind of late to the game. Many others had been working on the incandescent light bulb. But Edison was now determined to improve upon gas for indoor lighting. But he had also, you know, based part of his plan on how gas was produced and distributed and, and delivered throughout the city. In his plan, electricity, uh, direct current electricity, would have to be generated in power stations, uh, dynamos, they were called, and delivered underground via conduits. You know, none of those messy overhead wires for Thomas Edison. And like gas, you know, entire districts would be equipped for electricity at a time, each powerhouse producing basically for a five-block radius. And then you, as a homeowner, could pay to hook up to the system. Edison even formed a company to only do this. Yes, the Edison Electric Light Company, which was formed in 1878. And it was backed by J.P. Morgan and the Vanderbilts and, and other big names in the Gilded Age. So he had a plan to generate the electricity and using direct current and distribute it. But now he just needed the light bulb. A, or a light bulb that, that was long lasting and that was safe, that didn't explode. So much experimentation on the light bulb was being done out at his Menlo Park, New Jersey laboratory. And much of that was centered around what the filament should be made out of. Finally, the story broke in the newspapers on December 21st, 1879, that he had invented a light bulb with a safe, long-burning filament. And you said 1879 mm -hmm. wasn't the arc light that we were just sort of joking about introduced the next year, 1880? So these are concurrent? Yeah. All of this was happening at the same time. Which must have been thrilling. You know, Edison's bulb, the arc lights, gas companies fighting. By 1883, there were more than 300 Edison power plants producing electricity. But that didn't spell immediate doom for the gas companies. They didn't simply go out of business and disappear. Not everyone switched over right away to these light bulbs, which must have been expensive at first. Yes, they were more expensive. And you mentioned collusion a few minutes ago. In 1884, those competing gas companies merged. 
merged all together into the Consolidated Gas Company of New York. The gas companies consolidated. <laughs> exactly. And many people continue to simply use gas-powered lighting in their home, even though it was becoming increasingly clear that electricity, right, indoor electric lighting, was going to ultimately be the future. So then what could this gigantic consolidated company do at this point to kind of save themselves? Well, it could really push for other uses of all of that gas, right? Like heating and cooking. And as it knew a few things about laying pipes and delivering a utility, it could also incorporate steam. And then in 1899, this giant gas company, Consolidated Gas started buying up the various electrical companies as well, including the Edison Electric Illuminating Company, and in 1901, merged them all into one giant electric company they called the New York Edison Company. But this is kind of interesting. New York Edison, which we associate with electricity, like mm -hmm. that name, right? But it was controlled by the gas company. Consolidated Gas for gas and New York Edison for electricity. But then in 1936, these two companies merged to become the Consolidated Edison Company of New York. Or... Or as my bank account knows it, Con Ed, one of the primary providers of New York City utilities. So, shed no tears for the gas company. They've done just fine. <laughs> But Tom, now let's step back into the gaslit streets of New York one final time to talk with Jane Brox. And now we're joined by Jane Brox, the author of the 2010 book, Brilliant, The Evolution of Artificial Light, and several other works, including the 2020 book, Silence, A Social History of One of the Least Understood Elements of Our Lives. And in the book Brilliant, Jane spends time exploring gaslight and its effects on New York and really the world. Welcome to the show, Jane. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, just to warm us up here, you wrote an entire book on the history of artificial light, which is such a fascinating subject overall. What drew you to this particular subject? Well, it's interesting. It was one comment by an old neighbor of mine where I grew up. My father had grown up on our farm in Massachusetts without electricity. And so did his neighbors in the 1930s. One of his friends, an old neighbor, was telling me about seeing electric light for the first time. He went to um, off to agricultural school and he went into his boarding house and he said, I just kept flicking the switch off and on, off and on. And then he said, they must have thought I was simple. And he was laughing, but I, it struck me in that moment what a sociological difference there was between electricity and kerosene lamps at the time, and what a difference it made in the experience of the world and how the world saw you. And so that really started me on this whole long journey into the history of light. Yeah. And on today's show, we've really been focused on a narrower story, the story of gaslight in particular. And we mentioned that it it followed um, lanterns and candles um, inside people's homes and apartments. 
and it would give way uh, eventually to a, the electric light bulb. It's a little confusing, as you point out in the book, because those different technologies overlapped. Could you explain how you think that gaslight sort of fits into the larger history of artificial light, especially in a place like New York? I think of it as a essential but transitional technology. The 19th century was full of experimentation with electricity at the time. There were improvements to the candles and lamps that were lit by oil. But gaslight was the first light that was interconnected. It was the mm -hmm. first light that didn't require going and purchasing an oil. It seemed almost magical to people. And I think it served to transition people to electricity in an easier way. Gas being piped in made people more comfortable eventually with electricity. And I guess, as you point out, too, it's not even just electricity, right? It's the whole feeling of being connected to your neighbors and to the shops. And everybody's kind of on this grid for the first time. Correct. I mean, it's interesting to think now, I, I can't imagine being off the grid. But people mm -hmm. in the 19th century became accustomed to a grid and accustomed to experiencing light and everything else together. You know, there were blackouts and gaslight that sent people into a panic because all of a sudden everything was dark. And to use candles again seemed like they were back in the Middle Ages all of a sudden. So it was really a transition and a change. You know, Jane, five minutes before our interview began, my light bulb burnt out on my desk lamp and I had to race to the kitchen and I had to go get my light bulb and change it really quickly. And then I just sort of switched it on. So like the the methods in which we light ourselves are just so innate to us today. But a basic home gas lamp, how did you interact with it? Right. There would be a valve on each lamp in the household. You, you would light them individually and you would turn a valve that would turn the gas on. And then you would have to light it with a match so that you would go around and light your lights like that. I mean, I think there were commercial uses for it where there, the gas would be turned on in a valve and, and light several lamps at once. But in an individual household, um, each lamp had a little valve. And was the flame inside a like a, a globe or something? Was there a glass covering to it? It depends. I mean, the early ones were just open little, very crude little... Flames. Flames coming out of a tube, you know, that had been turned upward. But later on, in middle-class, upper-class Victorian households, the gas fixtures could be very ornate and have beautiful ornate shades to them. The gas itself could come out not only as a simple flame, but as a fan or a bat wing or something like that. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the gas flame could be turned upside down and shine underneath rather mm -hmm. than upright. So as, as the technology improved, it became a much more sort of ornate fixture. Inside a globe, it would have been safer in, in a crude gas lamp with an open flame there were accidents with, as there were with oil lamps, things caught on fire, wallpaper and drapes and that sort of thing. Well, yeah. So that that brings me to my next question about just sort of the safety of of this whole technology. I mean, there were obvious advantages, right? I mean, people could see better, um, and it seems kind of simple, and you didn't need to mess around with oils. But it seems like there were some pretty steep disadvantages too. 
Right. I mean, it has to be understood in the context of oil lamps and candles, which were extremely dangerous. And you know, right. there were a lot of deaths from people dropping their candles or their bedclothes catching on fire and that sort of thing, especially with children around. Children would knock candles over and that sort of thing. But gas had its own disadvantages. There were noxious fumes. It consumed oxygen. It could give you headaches in in poorly ventilated rooms. The gas works themselves, you know, it wasn't the natural gas we use today. They created the coal gas out of coal. They would have these huge gas works, which were large manufacturing places that were dirty, smelly, polluting. And sometimes they exploded. So there were all kinds of dangers associated with gas. But I don't know if they were any more dangerous for the normal household than oil lamps and candles, probably less so. But if we're thinking like an urban area like New York, you know, mid, late 19th century, how else did gaslight change a city? In a gaslit neighborhood, everything was brighter. The stores were brighter, the taverns were brighter, the restaurants were brighter. So there was this real enhancement of illumination. And it's interesting to think that the word nightlife is a 19th century word. Yeah. <laughs> you know, prior to prior to gaslight, going around the city in the evening was a very limited enterprise. And once gaslight arrived and, and proliferated, then the cities really began to open up. Shop windows were more brightly illuminated. You know, people went window shopping. It was also happening in conjunction with the consumer culture of the 19th century with the greater industrialization of the 19th century. So all these forces together were creating this whole different atmosphere at night in the city. Yeah, that I, th I thought that your passage about the, you know, this new term, nightlife, it was kind of like a <laughs> mic drop, you know, I was like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, think of the millions of people today employed in New York City mm -hmm. right, in nightlife right, right. and all the aspects that that means. And those jobs just wouldn't have right, been the right. same. And you're bringing right. up another, I mean, I'm thinking of it as a consumer, but also people then were working at night, right, in those places. Right. The factories could run later. You know, the factories could run 24 hours if they had to. And that they had oil lamps in the factories, but they were so cumbersome. The light was so limited, especially in something like uh, making cloth. You know, the mm -hmm. weavers couldn't really see what they were doing at night. So it, it made a huge difference for manufacturing as well. Well, at the end of our story here, of course, we got into Edison. Edison opened his Pearl Street power station in the summer of 1882, and it was soon generating, you know, electricity all over the city. But yet you write that many residents still kept their gas lights burning or didn't necessarily immediately join that new electrical grid. Um, why do you think that some people didn't just switch over immediately and, and adopt this new technology? Well, for one thing, I mean, the the electric grid also was chaotic in the way it w unfolded in that there were all these small electric companies and there were wires all over the place. It was deemed as something dangerous. People were being electrocuted by outside wires. I think, you know, if gaslight was strange to people, electricity was even stranger because there was no flame at all. It wasn't hot really, to, to begin with, you know, a, an electric light would heat up, but to begin with, it wasn't hot at all. 
you could uh, flip it on and off with a little switch. There, there was always a drag when any new lighting technology came on board. There was a drag for gas light. There was a drag for electric light. But soon enough, it became a, a matter of the more prominent parts of the city were bright with electricity and gas light seemed dark. But it seemed brilliant before it was now dark and the province of the poorer neighborhoods or the less developed neighborhoods. So I think the drag, in fact, was natural. The fears were natural, especially in something that seems so strange. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. But before you go, can you can you tell us just a couple minutes about Silence, about your new book? Well, Silence came out in 2020. It's about the silence it's a conversation between the silences of monasteries and the silences of penitentiaries. The, the silence of penitentiaries, silence and solitude of penitentiaries was based on the ideas of the monastery and the idea that it would rehabilitate the prisoners to spend this time in silence and solitude, which of course it did not. But I look at the architecture of the monastery and the penitentiary and the way silence inhabited the two different architectures. And now I'm working on a book that um, about the history of single women in their homes. Oh, wow. Sounds like it might use a little gaslight, too. I might use a little gaslight, because <laughs> of it, but that's because I, I'm, a, I'm single and I own my own house and I owe a debt of gratitude to 200 years of women who fought to get out of the back room of the family house and live independently. Well, Jay Prox, uh, we're so happy that you were able to join us here on the Barry Boys today. We've been discussing Jane's book, Brilliant, The Evolution of Artificial Light. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you for having me. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for some fascinating images of 19th century New York and all aflame and gaslight. That's BoweryBoysHistory.com. And a big thanks to everybody who supports the show on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. We think you'll love our other podcasts that we produce just for you, the patron-only show, Side Streets, where we allow ourselves to walk down the side streets the ten- and take tangential strolls through <laughs> uh, the New York of our memories yes. and, and other items that we were not able to fit into that week's show. Um, join the fun over at patreon.com slash Boys. And there you'll join additional patrons, Teresa G., Jill A., and David P. from Manhattan, Lee N. from Brooklyn, David T. from Maryland, Nate K. from Utah, and additional patrons Kim R., Mark S., Lauren T., Kathleen E., Joe C., and Ghost Poop. <laughs> that, look, we don't judge. Your name can be anything. We appreciate you joining us on patreon.com slash Boys. And we hope that you'll join us in the gaslit or the arclit streets of New York on one of our many walking tours that are led by our expert tour guides. We have walking tours of the East Village, Greenwich Village, Lower East Side, Grand Central Station, of Robert Moses versus Jane Jacobs. The High Line, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. There's even a tour on the history of New York newspapers. So many ways to walk through history. Join us at BoweryBoysWalks.com.
So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.